feel like Romans 2 is too technical for you and God's judgment's got your thoughts jumbled? Do you wonder how Paul would speak into the racial injustice occurring today? Keep listening as we explore these key issues in today's Zonecast. You're listening to The Zonecast, alive in the Word. Welcome to this episode of The Zonecast, where we take a deep dive into God's living and active word through our fortnightly podcast. In this first season, we've started to explore Paul's letter to the Romans, and we just enjoyed a two-part exploration of the second half of Romans 1 with Phil Fellows. And if you haven't heard these episodes, we recommend you catch up. But today, we're going to be looking at the first part of chapter 2. And we're also going to think about how Paul might have spoken into the current conversations and protests against racism in the US, the UK, and around the world if he was around today. So let's launch into today's episode. has been shaken by George Floyd's brutal murder in the US at the hands who are meant to protect others. And it's once again highlighted systemic injustice and oppression of people of colour in the US. But it's also shone the spotlight on issues of racism in the UK as people have spoken up and shared experiences and taken to the streets to stand against this evil in our society. Many individuals and churches are examining themselves and their culture and listening to the experience and perspective of others in their midst, discovering huge blind spots and perhaps things that we haven't realised about ourselves up until now. And these churches, including our own here in Willsborough, started a journey of change. Racism is a sin. It is dehumanising. It denies the image of God in others. It dishonours those God loves. And the Apostle Paul constantly fights against this problem in the early church. Often in Romans, he is trying to bridge the cultural divide between Jew and Gentile. He speaks of the gospel as this message of reconciliation in passages such as 2 Corinthians 5. He's fighting against assumed superiority by one group or another. In the letter to the Galatians, we see Paul fiercely oppose Jewish teachers who want uh, Gentiles to follow their traditions and Old Testament laws in order to be, they say, truly right with God. And Paul says, no, the gospel's sufficient. Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection is sufficient. It's by grace through faith. And he says in Galatians 3, verse 26, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. We could add to that black or white or any other skin tone. There is rich diversity, Paul says, in the new creation, but there is also perfect unity in Jesus Christ. Any who try to justify themselves according to race or birth or anything other than Jesus stands opposed to the truth of the gospel. Racism is antithetical to the gospel. In Ephesians, Paul is up against some of the same issues as those faced in Galatia. He's advocating again for unity in the body of Christ. And he says of Jesus in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, 
by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And in Romans, there are again tensions between people groups. The church in Rome had, like many churches elsewhere, been made up of Jewish and non-Jewish or Gentile followers of Jesus. But the Roman emperor Claudius is recorded as expelling the Jews from Rome. Five years later, they were allowed to return, but the church and its culture, it seemed, had changed in that time to become very non-Jewish in its customs and practices. And so... By the time Paul is writing to the church in Rome, there are tensions between these groups. Uh, Gentile Christians were thinking that they were free to do whatever they wanted and casting off restraint and rejecting their Jewish brothers and sisters, whereas Jewish Christians were wanting to force Gentile believers to again follow Old Testament practices. You know, people have always found difference difficult, particularly cultural differences. So many misunderstandings and prejudices and biases come from our own culture and background, whoever we are, and there's always this desire to force others into our mould. It seems as if in Rome there was a battle for superiority. Perhaps the Roman Gentile believers assumed superiority as they were Romans. They were in power. They had the rights and privileges that went with being a citizen of the empire. And then Jewish believers who were children of Abraham, they had the religious pedigree and background. They were part of God's chosen people. But Paul, all the while, had another people group in mind, even still. The people who were known as barbarians by these Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome. A racial slur, if ever there was one. These non-Greek people in Spain who would have been considered less than human by the Romans. Paul wants to reach them because they're worth it, because the gospel is worth it, because they are people whom God created in his image and loves and whom Jesus died for. And this is a new way of thinking that Paul is trying to get across to tribal people. And it's a new way of thinking for people even today. Paul stresses, as we've seen in the first chapter, that the gospel is for everyone. He wants the church in Rome not only to overcome their prejudices internally, but to look out to the world with love and join him in reaching people whose culture was completely alien to them, compelled by the Father's heart for every nation, his desire to call all people to himself through his Son, compelled by the Holy Spirit who breaks down the boundaries and barriers and unites people in the love of God. And so Paul says, as we shall see today in chapter 2, verse 11, God does not show favoritism. God is not your personal God or your tribal God or your national God. He's too big for that. He is king of the universe. He is Lord of all. You have no special claim to God other than through Jesus Christ. Paul says there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, but glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And we'll see why Paul uses this language of first as we look at the passage today. But it is not to say that they are more important, as we shall see. Likewise, uh, in, in James, we are warned not to show favoritism. 
not to allow worldly attitudes, prejudice and injustice to hold sway in our hearts and minds. And it is harder than it sounds because our motivations can be subtle. Our hearts can be deceptive. The first step is to stop defending ourselves and to ask God to search our hearts and to listen to the voice of the Spirit in our brothers and sisters of colour and their experience, particularly in our churches. May God renew our hearts and our minds and help us to build a just church and to work for justice in our world. So if you've got a Bible uh, to hand, you're going to want to grab it. And if you're on the move, just listen along. But we're going to turn to Romans 2, verses 1 to 16. As we heard last week, Paul moved from his introduction where he told us the gospel's the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes, to then look at the universal issue of sin and the wrath of God. And in chapter 2, Paul tells us that this is an issue for Jews as well as Gentiles. Hence, everyone needs the gospel. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will also be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature the things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciousness also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Amen. May God give us wisdom and insight by the power of his Holy Spirit as we explore his word. So, Having said that everyone is accountable to God for sin, Paul is now saying that Jews are accountable to God for sin as well. And he's gone from the third person speaking about people generally, um, i.e. in this first chapter, God handed them over. They turned away from God. And now he goes into the second person, you. And it's like the spotlight has turned. It's a bit complicated here, as he's actually in, in a way not directly addressing his readers. If he, was, um, if he was, he would use the second person plural, but he's actually using the singular version of you. 
For the language scholars who are listening in, he's using a literary technique called diatribe. Paul is essentially addressing an imaginary conversation partner, a hypothetical person who's embodying some of the issues Paul wants to address. Primarily, this issue is the misconception that Jews are justified by their ethnicity, by their birth, and by possessing the law. Uh, Paul doesn't know his audience personally. He's never met this church. So it's easier to address these hard truths to a hypothetical figure than directly to them. And it's like we're listening in on this conversation. And perhaps that would have helped them not to take too much offence. As Phil said last week, though, this verse should stop us in our tracks. It should arrest us if we were thinking of casting judgment on a particular group or people um, or other person. Paul is very clear. We are in no place to judge. We do the same things. To consider ourselves as somehow superior morally or in any way relating to our own righteousness is to boast in something other than the cross of Jesus. And by doing so, to be in danger of placing ourselves outside of the grace of God, relying instead on our moral performance, which will always let us down as we do the same things, i.e. these sins that are listed at the end of chapter 1. We fall short of the glory of God all the time and it is only because of the cross of Christ and the grace of God lavished on us as a result that we stand free from condemnation. And that is the message Paul is going to get across to us in chapter 3. Paul outlines the gospel in the first four chapters of this letter, but there is one word central to salvation that is used in Romans more than any other New Testament book and yet is not mentioned at all in this chapter. Faith. Faith is mentioned 24 times in the first four chapters of Romans and yet not once in chapter two. It's totally absent. Why? Because if faith is absent, then so is righteousness, as righteousness is by faith from first to last. We read that in chapter one. And Paul is talking about the judgment that is coming upon the Jews in the same way as it is coming on the Gentiles. The Jews in Rome, they think they are righteous. And Paul is saying, you are not. Paul emphasizes that God is an impartial judge who will judge all according to what they have done. And the possession of the Mosaic law will make no difference where judgment is concerned because it is the doing of the law that matters. He even says there's a sense in which the Gentiles have an awareness of the requirements of God too, and yet no one fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. Jew and Gentile stand condemned and need the righteousness of God available in the gospel. That's the summary, if you like, of the passage we've read. But don't switch off just yet. Let's dive into some of the detail. Verse 2, Paul says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think that you will escape God's judgment? God's judgment is based on truth. The facts of the matter. His justice is fair and it reveals any attempt at deception, uncovering what is hidden and kept secret. Paul here is leveling the playing field between Jew and Gentile. And he argues that the one who thinks that they are able to escape God's judgment is mistaken. In Paul's day, just as today, there were many moralists and philosophers who thought they could please God by their good lives. But particularly a Jew would be likely to make this assumption. But Paul's saying this is not possible. It has never been possible, even in reference to the Mosaic Covenant. Commentator Douglas Moo, in his commentary on Romans, which is part of the New International Commentary on the New Testament, summarises the argument in these first three verses of Romans 2 as follows. 
God's judgment falls on those who do these things. Even the self-righteous judge does these things. Therefore, even the self-righteous judge stands under God's judgment. Simple, isn't it? Not many surprises there for Christians, hopefully, but a reminder for us as we can easily slip into judgmentalism ourselves, especially if we lose sight of the centrality of the gospel or if we think we've somehow progressed beyond it. The minute we stand in judgment over someone, we invite judgment upon ourselves. Hence, Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 2, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured to you. In fact, Paul says that in judging others, we are showing contempt towards God's mercy in verse 4. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Our God is slow to anger. He's swift to bless. He's abounding in steadfast love. He stays his hand of judgment. He's slow to condemn. And we are meant to demonstrate to others the richness of his kindness, forbearance and patience. Having received his mercy, we're not to cast judgment on others as if we were somehow deserving of anything other than wrath ourselves. The Greek word used for kindness here, krestatetos, also is translated goodness and it's used by Paul to describe God elsewhere in Romans 11 verse 22, in Ephesians 2 verse 7, in Titus 3 verse 4. You know, often it's used in the Septuagint, in the Psalms, to speak of God's goodness towards his people. Forbearance and patience are the expression of God's goodness in his patient withholding of the judgment that is rightfully due to the sinner. Jewish tradition at the time Paul was writing led many to believe that Israel's favoured position and security in God's judgment was pretty much cast iron. But Paul calls this into question and he says they're showing contempt for God's mercy in their attitudes and their superiority complex. He goes on to say they're no better off than Gentiles in the judgment. God's kindness and goodness is not intended to excuse sin but to lead people to repentance. Paul's teaching in his letters, does not major, in a sense, on repentance, or at least on that word, and that may surprise us. Moo suggests that maybe Paul realised that acceptance with God required a stronger action than that that's traditionally associated with the word repentance by Jews at the time. You see, repentance was seen by them very much as a human work. There were guidelines, there were step-by-step instructions on how to repent. Perhaps today it would be seven easy steps to repentance. It was a process of self-transformation whereby repenting mitigated against future instances of the same sin. But Christ's saving work on the cross was much fuller and more comprehensive and genuinely life-transforming than this. We are meant to see God's goodness chiefly in the gospel and be radically changed through encountering Jesus and by the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts and minds. And that's what true repentance is all about. The Greek word metanoia, used for repentance in the New Testament, means change of mind. It means changing your whole way of thinking, your worldview. It's a heart change. And only God can do this. It's his grace and mercy that compels us. A sense of superiority and self-righteous, on the other hand, is a sign of an unrepentant heart. It's what Jesus hated. Uh, You know, the pride of the Pharisees, which he stood against. It's ugly and ungodly. 
When Paul speaks of storing up wrath, he's using a phrase that was almost always used to refer to something good. You know, storing up blessing. Thesaurus used in Matthew chapter 6 verse 20 is used for storing up treasures in heaven. The word actually can literally mean treasure up. So in the case of Matthew 6, treasure up for yourself treasures, like saving up for something. However, Paul uses it ironically. Those who think of themselves more highly than they ought and look down on others and believe that good things await them will be surprised on the day of God's judgment that they've only stored up wrath for themselves. There was a Jewish tendency to confine God's judgment only to Gentile sinners, but Paul has shocking news that God's righteous judgment extends to all, to both Jew and Gentile. Just as the good news is for all people, Jew, Gentile, Greek, non-Greek, Spaniards, wise, foolish, so is God's judgment. In verse 6, Paul affirms Old Testament and Jewish teaching that every person will be judged according to what they have done. Even though this teaching is said in a new context as a result of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is still relevant. We can see it expressed in uh, chapters such as Matthew 16, verse 27, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 15, 2 Timothy 4, verse 14. Paul echoes Old Testament teaching. Proverbs 24, verse 12 says, If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Will he not repay everyone according to what they have done? Verses 7 to 8 at first glance seem surprising in the context of Paul's teaching. He seems to almost suggest that good work will lead to eternal life. That's not actually what he's saying, and we'll look at this further in a bit. The work that Paul is referring to is a persistent lifestyle of godliness. This Greek word hypermonain means endurance. It indicates patient fortitude, a perseverance in And in this verse, Paul clearly indicates there are only two potential outcomes in store for every person at the time of God's righteous judgment. In other words, those who do not receive eternal life receive the punishment of God's wrath. For Paul, obedience is the main indicator of one's spiritual state. And wrath is in store for those who refuse to subject themselves to the truth as God has revealed it. The truth that's revealed in creation, as we saw in chapter one, and in the gospel For those who instead live out of selfishness, um, the Greek here being ex erytheus, out of self-interest, which sadly for many is the motivating principle in life. For those people, Paul says, wrath is in store. Paul wants again to emphasize the universality and impartiality of this judgment, trouble and distress for every soul of a person who does evil. And Paul uses the same phrase that demonstrated the priority of the Jews as the first recipients of the good news of salvation. And he now says there'll be the same priority in judgment, which is a stark warning to Jewish people who believe they are somehow beyond the judgment of God, as those in Rome did, perhaps. For those seeking glory and honour in verse 7, God will grant glory and honour and peace as well. And this Jewish concept, shalom, the state of perfect well-being with God in new creation. But who does Paul have in mind in verses 7 and 10 when he speaks of those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honour and immortality? We know that in Romans 3 verse 20, Paul goes on to write that no one will be justified by the works of the law. So many possibilities have been posited over the years for who these people could be, but There are two that seem most plausible. 
Number one, this is hypothetical. In other words, the promise of eternal life for those who do good is fully valid. But the power of sin prevents anyone from doing that good to the degree that is necessary to merit salvation. Verses 7 and 10, therefore, set out the condition apart from Christ for salvation. But Paul's subsequent argument in Romans 3 shows that no one is able to fulfill these conditions. Option two, uh, many also think that perhaps Paul is, in, in writing these words, thinking specifically of Christians because they and only they are those who, through union with Christ, are able, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to produce works acceptable to God in the judgment. Perhaps the context more strongly leans towards the first rather than the second, as it doesn't seem that Paul is directly describing Christians in verses 7 and 10. But rather he's establishing that God will judge all on the same basis, by works, not by religious heritage or national identity. And it is upon this basis that Paul argues that no one meets the necessary standards. He's wanting to paint a picture of universal human powerlessness under sin. Of course, as our lives are transformed through faith in Christ, we do come to meet God's standards. We are clothed in Jesus, in Christ. We're declared righteous by faith and we're given power to live lives acceptable to God through the Holy Spirit. But it's only in him. The New Testament is quite clear that all people, even Christians, will in some sense be judged by works. Perhaps that's a surprise to you, but if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, or 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Galatians chapter 5, verses 6 or 21, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, James chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, Hebrews 12, 14, Matthew 7, 24 to 27, or, or chapter 12, verse 37, or chapter 20, verses 31 to 46 or Luke 10 25 to 28 I say all this to indicate that this is an idea that pervades the New Testament that even Christians will in some sense be judged by works and that's not to say that our salvation is earned in any way it is not it is only through faith in Christ that we're saved and that's not by works but by his saving work for us on the cross but we will be judged according to our works in other words there will be an accord between our life and our faith in Jesus. Our works and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives will be kind of the corroborating evidence of our faith in Christ. James says, doesn't he, that faith without works is dead. And not to mention the fact that also the level of our faithfulness determines the level of our reward in the kingdom somehow, the parable of the talents. We don't fully understand this, but there's a correlation here. So the relationship between justification and judgment can seem quite complex. Salvation is from first to last ascribed to God's grace. Romans makes this abundantly clear. Justification in this life is sufficient to deliver us from God's wrath at the judgment. And yet there are serious warnings in scripture about the importance of our works and our faithfulness at the final judgment. And we see that in some of the verses mentioned earlier. Douglas Moo helps us with this. He says, justification by faith granted the believer in this life is the sufficient cause of those works that God takes into account at the time of the judgment. The initial declaration of the believer's acquittal before the bar of heaven at the time of one's justification is infallibly confirmed by the judgment according to works at the last assize. 
In other words, there's no contradiction here. Paul is wanting to say the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Most Jews would want to maintain, including perhaps some in Rome, that the Gentile could only experience God's favour by taking on the yoke of the law. They'd want to say outside Israel and the sphere of the law, there is no salvation. And within it, salvation is pretty much guaranteed. But Paul is saying that having the law is of no advantage. You need to do the law. You need to live it out. As many as sin without the law will perish without the law. And as many who sin in the law will be judged through the law, he says. This judgment refers to the negative judgment of condemnation. Again, looking ahead to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we see that all have sinned. In other words, the as many who sin here actually incorporates everyone. And Christ, as we know, is the only one who fulfills the righteous requirements of the law. He did not abolish it, but he fulfilled it. There is a clear Old Testament and New Testament principle that hearing the law without doing it is abhorrent to God. It is hypocrisy. You've got to practice what you preach. Integrity is at stake apart from anything else. Paul in verse 13 affirms that doing the law can lead to salvation, but he both denies that anyone can do the law and he says that the Jews cannot depend on their covenant relationship to shield them from the consequences of their failure to uphold the law. Verses 14 and 15 are perhaps even more tricky. Paul says this, Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bear in witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. Three views are taken on who these verses refer to. See which one you think is best. Number one, Gentiles who fulfill the law and are saved apart from their faith in Christ. Number two, Gentiles who do some part of the law but who are not saved. And number three, Gentile Christians who fulfill the law by virtue of their relationship to Christ. Again, the first is not possible given the alarming inconsistency with all the rest of Paul's teaching, including the rest of this letter. The last is not likely given the context. Paul has been speaking about Jews and Gentiles in the broadest sense, and he does not specify that they are believers here. Paul is qualifying what he means by without the law here. Gentiles may be without the law from a Jewish perspective, without the Old Testament Torah in effect, and insofar as the law of Moses is concerned. But saying they are without the law is certainly not the same as saying they are without law. Paul has already said in this letter that the Gentiles have some knowledge of God's moral demands, law in its broadest sense. It is imprinted on their conscience. When God condemns them, he does not do so without them having any idea at all of what his moral demands upon them might be. Romans 1 verse 32 says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Paul's not talking about some Gentiles in verses 14 and 15, but all Gentiles who, of course, all at times do things required by the law, acting 
at times in accordance with God's ways. This is by nature, Paul says, by the fact that people know in a very basic sense good from evil. People recognise right from wrong. Of course they do, even if our view is distorted at times. Paul is not speaking specifically of Gentile Christians. Otherwise, it would be by grace through Christ, not by nature. The fact, Paul says, that their thoughts not only defend but also accuse them is key. Paul is certainly not saying that Gentiles can be justified apart from Christ. They cannot. In fact, he is saying this. He's saying the law written on their consciences is, again, enough to condemn them but not enough to save them. The fact that we have the ability to distinguish what is right from wrong and yet we still do what is wrong is the key point here. Paul is again wanting to put Jews and Gentiles on the same footing. We both have the law in some sense, but there is certainly no advantage in that if neither can keep it, neither Jew nor Gentile. We are all lawbreakers, Paul is saying. And so therefore, verse 16 comes as the natural conclusion regarding these Gentiles. He says, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Just as the Jews will be judged regarding their conformity to the law, so too will Gentiles be judged according to their conformity to the law they possess. And even their secret thoughts will be used as evidence. The reality that deep down we know that we fail to live as we should, even if we keep that hidden. Paul is building his case here. He's demonstrating our universal need for the gospel, for the grace extended to us in Jesus. He's calling for humility from both Jew and Gentile and humility from us too. If we heard the end of Romans 1 last week and we felt like pointing the finger at others, then we missed the point. Phil told us this very clearly. Paul is shining a spotlight on our hearts. You know, we can come around full circle in the, in the current debate about racial justice in our society. Again, God is convicting people across church life of their innermost thoughts and attitudes, of a culture that is not always as inviting as we think it is, and of a secret favoritism, perhaps, and bias in our hearts that can misrepresent Jesus. We know what is right but how often do we fail to do it but with the Holy Spirit's help we can we can overcome sin and you know there may be other things today we want to just bring to God and ask him for that power to overcome so that we can walk in greater obedience to him and his word praise God that he does not treat us as our sins deserve but he is patient and good may the kindness of God lead us to a deeper repentance this day let me pray Father, help us to be those who do not judge others or trust in our own righteousness, but put our trust fully in your son, Jesus. Holy Spirit, transform our hearts and minds to make us more like him. Help us to shine like stars in our generation and be communities of reconciliation, love and justice. For your glory, Lord. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of The Zonecast. Join us next week when we'll be looking at the second half of Romans chapter 2 and exploring Paul's thoughts on the law in more detail with Reverend Dr. Peter Lalleman, tutor in biblical studies at Spurgeon's College, New Testament specialist and published author, an episode not to be missed. 
If you've enjoyed this week's podcast, please subscribe and catch up on recent episodes you may have missed. Please help us reach more listeners by rating or reviewing the podcast in your provider and like our Facebook page for updates about the show and extra links and content. If you have any questions, comments or feedback, please get in touch with us via email. That's mark at thezonecast.com. That's zone without an E. And we hope you can join us in a couple of weeks' time for the rest of Romans 2. But in the meantime, may the Word of God dwell in you richly. Goodbye. You've been listening to The Zonecast, brought to you by Willsboro Baptist Church, Ashford. For more information or to get in contact, find us on Facebook at The Zonecast or visit www.willsboroughbaptist.church.